when my passport expires but i can tell you when my visa expires Sujit Bakalanka is a doctor on the front lines of this coronavirus pandemic. And he has a lot to worry about just by virtue of his job. His patients, his own health, the strangers he could run into at the grocery store. Ideally, visa issues would not be on his list of concerns. But he is one of tens of thousands of immigrant doctors in the United States who are worried about deportation even as they help their communities fight this pandemic. On the other side of the Atlantic, foreign-born doctors in the United Kingdom are the first ones dying of COVID-19. The first four health worker deaths were all men born in South Asia or Africa. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Today we're talking about the social and economic hardships that non-white doctors face in the U.S. and U.K., especially during this coronavirus pandemic. I set up a Zoom call with two journalists covering this transatlantic story. One is Aina Khan. She's in London and spoke with the families of the first doctors there who died treating COVID-19. And we're also joined by Ashish Malhotra, a freelance journalist who produces for Al Jazeera and reports for the LA Times and others. So Ashish, let's start with you. You wrote this story for the LA Times, and it's about how so many doctors in the U.S. are on immigrant visas or even exchange student visas. And now they're concerned about their future since visa processings in the U.S. are on hold because of the pandemic. Can you talk to me about one of the doctors you spoke to, Dr. Vidit Bhargava. Vidit Bhargava is what they call a fellow on a J-1 visa. He's a medical trainee. It means that he got his medical degree overseas in India, where he's from. But he's been in the U.S. for about five or six years doing his residency in the pediatric hospital at Stanford. And he's very much on the front lines of the COVID crisis. How was he feeling when you talked to him? I mean, I think he had a, a range of emotions. On the one hand, he was actually amped up in a way that, you know, this is the kind of situation that he has been training for as a doctor. Nobody is fearful in the hospital of taking care of people. What people are fearful is that we may expose ourselves to the risk if there aren't ways for us to protect ourselves. But beyond that, we're all upbeat about the fact that, yeah, we've trained for this. This is why we went into the profession of medicine and we're willing to help. He's there to be on the front lines. He very much wants to be there to help address this crisis in the U.S. right now. But on the other hand, in the back of his mind, he's always got this sort of worry about, you know, I've invested about five or six years of my life in this country. This is where I want to be. And I'm exposing myself every day. And yet in a few months, I might have to leave the country. Dr. Bhargava is in a particularly tricky visa situation because he's not just trying to renew his visa. He's trying to transition from one program to another, to stay in the U.S. long term and continue his work as a doctor here. He works as a critical care fellow at Stanford. And he's also accepted a full-time position in Alabama, which means that he's supposed to transition from what's called a J-1 visa to an H-1B. So the J-1 visa is a trainee visa. So it's, it's for people who are on 
their residencies. The H-1B is for highly skilled immigrants, from tech workers to doctors to a lot of different fields. Normally, with the J-1 visa, you actually have to leave the U.S., go to your home country, and then come back after your H-1B is approved. Instead, Dr. Bhargava, like many others, is relying on something called the Conrad Waiver Program, which is supposed to let you skip those steps. But as you said, you know, visa processing services are very much scaled back right now in the U.S. And so his current visa ends in June, and he's supposed to transition to that new job in July. But given how things stand right now, it's, it's very unclear whether he's going to be able to get that done in time. I mean, if anything, it looks like he won't be able to. There is a real possibility that once I am done with this process, not only that my waiver doesn't go through and I don't have a job, I may also be an illegal immigrant in a country where I'm every day sweating it out in the hospital where everybody else is at home. This arduous visa process is just another step of many for foreign-born doctors like Bhargava. Ashish says people who want to work in American hospitals and clinics begin investing financially and emotionally years before they set foot in the United States. I've spoken to a student who's trying to come in and start that process right now to start his J-1 residency. He's in Pakistan, and he said that investment is as much as ten to 20000 U.S. dollars at this point of the process. You have to come to the U.S. and do in-person interviews. You have to take an exam in the U.S. So he's already come, I believe, twice, and then now he's kind of stuck. So for someone like Vidit at Stanford, who's already done that about six years ago, and then for the past six years he's been here, I think there's also an emotional investment in, in the sense that he's been living in this country for the past six years. He's married, and you know his plans were to you know move to Alabama and start this full-time position, and now it's kind of all up in the air. So Vidit talked about how anxious he is, nervous, and so many other doctors that you quoted in your article for the LA Times did as well. What has the U.S. government said about these work visas and what is the government doing to ease some of these anxieties? Just to take you into the process a little bit of how I was doing this story, there was a clarification from the State Department while I was doing it, it was encouraging foreign doctors to apply at consulate to get their visas facilitated in this extraordinary COVID circumstance. But then when I spoke to some more of the doctors themselves, they were still very unclear on the situation and, and their anxieties were still very real. Then I spoke to Greg Siskin. Hello. Hey, Greg, uh, this is Ashish with the LA Times. Talking to me on my watch. Oh, okay. Can you call me on my? Uh, Greg Siskind is a lawyer, immigration lawyer based in Memphis, who facilitates these kinds of visas. And he was telling me, look, this update is not really much of a clarification at all. This situation is still a big mess. I took a bunch of lawyers on a conference call today to figure this one out. And there's about eight different agencies that play a role in this process, and it doesn't seem like there's any point people at these agencies. There's no coordination. They didn't actually give any information about how one actually gets an appointment. All they said in there was contact the embassy. Well, that's not very helpful. What he's saying is that the U.S. government has announced an emergency visa process for foreign-born doctors, but it hasn't made that process clear or easy to follow, even for experienced immigration lawyers. 
And I'd like to ask Aina, actually, because it's quite different from the situation in the UK, where the Home Secretary just flat out said that we're extending the visas of all foreign doctors for a year. Yeah, so our Home Secretary, she announced on um, 31st of March that, you know, she'd be extending the visas. And there have been calls to bring in more overseas doctors. But I think more than that, the overwhelming sentiment, especially amongst people from minority communities in the UK, is that these professionals are just not appreciated for what they've done for the country, for what they've done uh, for people. And, you know, there's several reasons for that. First and foremost, for a while, there's been a staffing crisis in the National Health Service in the UK. And the kind of human fodder, if you want, that has always been used to fill that up has, for the most part, always been overseas medics, overseas carers who have come to the UK to basically fill in that gap. And you'll find that overseas medics who live in the UK and work in the UK, they have to pay a $500 surcharge per person. And I know in the American context, that sounds like absolutely nothing. But given the fact that we've had, you know, free healthcare since 1948, when the National Health Service was first founded, you know, it's quite unbelievable that people who give that kind of service to a country are still made to jump through hoops. In the past few years, foreign-born doctors in the UK have had even more obstacles to tackle, beyond the financial ones Aina just outlined. In 2016, the UK voted to leave the EU, and with that verdict came a resurgence of overt racism. After the EU referendum in 2016, there was a tangible rise in hate crimes across the country. ITV News, they're a national news channel in the UK. They conducted research into racist attacks experienced by National Health Service workers. And they found that there was over 140% increase in racist attacks towards NHS workers who were from minority ethnic backgrounds. The patient says, can I have a white doctor to uh, do the operation? And I was devastated. It made me reconsider my position in the NHS because I'm thinking, do I want to put up with this? And if I did not have a 12-year-old for whom I have to take care, I would have left the NHS long time back. That's the kind of treatment that these people face, and it doesn't matter what you know, level of the medical hierarchy you're on, whether you're a carer or, you know, a surgeon consultant, that's the kind of treatment that some of these people have faced. I think this is particularly shocking, given that if you're at a hospital, it means that you are in need of help and you're in need of care. So it doesn't matter who gives you that care. But to hear reports like that, and, and I know they're not unique, unfortunately. I've read reports of other instances like that. I think they're even more so shocking when you consider that about 40% of medical professionals in the National Health Service are from non-white ethnic groups. Yes. And in the U.S., it's about one in four physicians. So what happens if these doctors' fears come true, if they're deported or if they succumb to the disease? Ashish, I'll give this one to you. Like Aina said in the UK, I think there's a severe shortage of, of doctors here as well. Uh, one of the sort of leading institutions on these kinds of things said last year that there could be a shortfall of about 122,000 doctors by 2032. 
And, and so to have this crisis right now sort of exacerbating it, it, it makes you think that these governments would retain these doctors, would bring foreign doctors in because there's a need for them. For instance, you've got the state of New York right now that's like desperately calling for medical trainees to come in. The soldiers in this fight are our health care professionals. As governor of New York, I am asking healthcare professionals across the country, if you don't have a healthcare crisis in your community, please come help us in New York now. There's actually a lot of doctors here who, because the visa actually sort of restricts them in terms of where they can work, they can only work at one particular hospital. You know, like Vidit Bhargava, who we mentioned, he is someone who is in California, but he's like, I, I want to go to New York. I want to go and sort of be on the front lines there. If possible, when I'm not working and if there is a call for physicians to go over to either New York or Louisiana, then that would be something that I would be interested in as well. But his visa doesn't allow him to do that. So there's a lot of, of these foreign doctors in terms of the overall sort of crisis that the U.S. healthcare system is in right now and how that's being exacerbated. This is another piece of that, that even when you do have foreign doctors here, you can't necessarily deploy them in the way that might be most beneficial. Aina, you talk to the families of some of those first doctors to die of COVID-19 in the UK. So I want to delve into your reporting with a note to listeners that this was heavy. So one of them, Amjad al-Hawrani, was born in Sudan and he moved to the UK as a young boy and he grew up and he became an ear, nose and throat specialist. And then he died of COVID-19 even though he didn't have any underlying complications. Can you talk to me about your conversation with his brother, Amal? When I, so I think as, as with anything these days, I, I found Amal on, on Twitter and I, I reached out to him. And, you know, yeah, it was really difficult because when I spoke to Amal, actually, he just arrived from his brother's funeral. And it was just... Um, Amjad was someone who was very, very strong, both mentally and physically, but in a calm and gentle way. And his strength was one that was always used for good. I'd never met his brother, but I got the sense of somebody who was not only selfless in his profession, he was selfless in every sense. He would be more like a protector and a shielder, fighting for people, fighting for his brothers. You know, for me, just um, the spirit of this man, the kind of selflessness, the energy of somebody who dedicated his personal and professional life to helping people, that really, really stood out for me. There's a story of the way Amjad dealt with adversity and challenges in his life, and it involves a tree. Can you tell that story? That's actually the part of the conversation that stood out to me most. So... Amal spoke about, in their family home in Bristol, he described uh, a tree. We've got this massive tree in our garden right. that's really, really big. And he said somebody, they don't know who, someone had basically climbed over into their garden. And apparently there is a way that you can kill a tree. Things called ringed it. They went all around the tree and took like about two inches out of the bark. To, and that's what they do to try and kill a tree. 
And Amgid was a man of many, many talents. Um, Amal described him as somebody who was very, very um, intelligent, very curious. He took branches from the tree and nailed them below the place where the bark was cut and above where the bark was cut. And he said that's because the nutrients from the soil that come from the roots and go up the tree can go through this branch that I've nailed above and below the, the ring oh, so wow. it could still get to the top. And he did it all the way around the tree and then wrapped the tree with this cloth and, 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 and the tree's still alive now. I mean, you know, he saved human beings in his profession and it also extended to trees as well. It went beyond humanity. That's the kind of, you know, generous spirit that he was. He saved that tree. And I remember when Amal told me that, that, yeah, that really got me. That really got me. It's been a few weeks since Amjad al-Hawrani passed away and several more doctors with immigrant backgrounds have also now died while battling COVID-19 in the UK. Another doctor who died just recently, Dr. Abdul Jodri, he was a consultant urologist who came from Bangladesh decades ago, worked for the NHS for decades. He died last week of coronavirus. On March 18th, he wrote on Facebook a whole status addressed to Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister of the UK, saying that medical professionals weren't being given enough personal protection equipment which we call PPE, and that, you know, the government should really be fast-tracking testing of, of health workers on the front line. He wrote that on March 18th, and he died last week. So, you know, that also raised a lot of eyebrows. And I, that, I guess that cuts across race and, and all of that, because really, I think that just highlights the the shortcomings of, of the government, the fact that they're not doing enough to protect these workers. Yes, they've taken a Hippocratic oath to do no harm and to save lives and all of that. But we owe a duty to them as well, to protect them, to give them the equipment that they need in order to do their job. And that's The Take. Before we go, we'd like to thank the doctors and the families who shared their stories with us. These were difficult conversations about grief and anxiety, and we appreciate you taking the time. This episode was produced by Priyanka Tilve and me, Malika Bilal, with Ney Alvarez, Dina Kispe, Alexandra Locke, and Amy Walters. Natalia Aldana is our engagement producer. We've got a new look. You should check us out at AJ the Take on Instagram and Twitter. Alex Roldan is our team sound designer. Stacey Samuel is the executive producer. And Graylin Bashir is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back. <laughs> 